Thank you for joining us on our journey here to preserve the history of mixed martial arts. When I wanted to take on this project, I needed help. I brought in one of my favorite matchmakers, Miguel Iterate, and the MMA detective, Mike Davis. So to do this, we've been able to preserve history. Welcome and enjoy. Hey, Miguel Iterate, back here on the Lights Out podcast. MMA detective, Mike Davis, off to the side here. And we are on another deep dive, Chris Lytle. Bare knuckle land has called him off, but we couldn't resist. We got a really special guest, a behind the scenes person uh, in most eyes, also the founder of ATT American Top Team. Dan Lambert is with us. Dan, how are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you? And uh, yeah, I'm doing, I'm doing great. I'm very glad to connect with you again here. And I do think this is going to be a fascinating interview because in my estimation, you may not have heard the name Dan Lambert if you're just an MMA fan or, or whatever it is, but in my estimation, you're talking about probably one of the top 10 most influential people in the sport. With us since the 90s, you know, doing a lot of stuff behind the scenes, obviously with ATT, but there were shows and things like that. And, you know, I, he's seen his ups and downs. And if anybody's got stories on this sport, it's this man right here. I'm going to let the MMA detective take over. So, Dan, you're actually known as being an incredibly private person. What kind of made you flip that switch and kind of cross over? I know you're obviously doing AEW stuff right now, but what made you comfortable enough to make that transition? Um, I would say the main impetus of the transition was how much I hated the Black Zillions. And when the UFC called and asked if we would do the, the ultimate fighter season, I just couldn't turn up the chance to uh, – try to expose some of those guys for how much I disliked them. So that was probably it up until that point, you know, we had never, you know, our team's always been a team concept, you know, it's not Dan's team or Conan's team or this team. And it's always, you know, just a generic team, American top team. We try to make it about the fighters, we try to make it about the coaches, you know, it's all about, you know, it's not about individuals. It's about our team. So there was really never a, a reason for any individual to try to take any type of bigger role, at least publicly. Um, but when they did that season, you know, it was kind of hard to, you know, hide in the background when it was focused around a strong dislike for people. So I guess hate's a pretty good motivation sometimes. <laughs> well, that took place in 2015. But the thing is, it's like you have been established for almost two decades at that point. Did you come up with this idea for the tough season or was it the UFC's idea? Because that only really in terms of publicity benefited them more than it ever could have you it wasn't my idea i was sitting home watching i think like a monday night football game or something like that and i got a call from somebody at the ufc is like hey how much do you hate those guys and i'm like a lot and they're like well you hate them enough to do a show against them and see if you guys can you know beat them head to head and i'm like um yeah and that's kind of how the show came about okay yeah that, that definitely helped them more than it, it did you but why don't we bring it back to the beginning when did you know you were hooked? What was the first event that you had ever seen? Well, I, the concept of mixed martial arts for me really came through pro wrestling, you know, and watching the, you know, the shoot promotions, UWF, yeah. UWFI in the 80s. You know, Pancreas started right around the same time as the UFC. So I started off watching those because I, tra I tape traded. I used to trade VHS tapes. I would record stuff I got access to here in the United States, and I would trade it with guys who had access to – all Japan, New Japan, um, over in Japan. And, and then they started sending me UWF and, and, and Pancreas. And I started to get hooked then. 
So when the UFC came about, I had already started, you know, the drug a little bit and followed through the Wrestling Observer, following their coverage of those. And so the UFC was really the first, you know, UFC one was really the first true shoot show that I guess I watched. Wow. And then what was your first live event that you had attended? Uh, I want to say it was like UFC nine. Um, but that I'm not sure if that predated the, the first W WEF show that Jamie Levine did. I went to that one as well, helped him out with that show. And that was, that was also in the nineties. Uh, maybe in, I don't, I couldn't tell you the exact day. So I don't know if it was one of Jamie's shows or if it was that first UFC that I went to. Okay. How did you hook up with Jamie Levine? So Jamie Levine, for everybody that knows, he was a famed WEF promoter, very notorious. I mean, you've heard dozens of stories on our podcast about him. How does he wind up in your, in your line of vision? Um, his uncle was a dentist and shared a lawyer with me. And I got a call from a lawyer one day, and my lawyer, and he basically said, hey, would you mind if I gave your number out to a guy, one of my clients, his nephew is in the MMA business, I know you you know, you've got a jujitsu team and some of your guys fight. Would you mind if we linked you guys up? And I was like, yeah, sure. No problem. And I got a call from Jamie Levine and uh, became one of his uh, sources for whatever. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember, you know, when you rolled into Evansville that, you know, he was putting on elite, elite fights. So you can say whatever you want about this guy in terms of like the way he did business, maybe you want to talk about that? Maybe you don't, but in terms of the fights he was actually putting on, he was, you know, right there on par with the UFC, really. And he was for He did. Jamie put together some really good fight shows. I mean, there was a show that we did with him in, I think it was Rome, Georgia. Maybe it was WF Platinum, I want to yeah. say, but Minotaro was on it. He fought Jeremy Horn, Pat Militich was on it uh, matt hughes was on it um i mean the list of guys that was on that show i'm not sure if rich franklin was on that show or the one before jeremy i mean uh jens pulver was on it i mean just the list of guys that were on his shows were just crazy that was one show yeah aaron riley was on that one too yeah fought uh henzo student so yeah so now there's always the rumor that that you know, you were helping uh, Jamie out with funding some of the shows and stuff. And that, that goes without saying, did you ever feel like, did you ever feel ripped off by him? Because they're I, like, I, I'll tell you who told me the story because, you know, Dean Thomas always said that you would get a list and be like, Dean Thomas is making 5,000 and that, you know, Dean would actually take home 500. <laughs> and is that something that, is that something you could corroborate? And when did you, you don't feel that from Jamie because that's kind of slimy. Yeah, it's kind of slimy. It's a true story. You know, I remember talking to a couple of guys about what they made later on down the road and hearing that it was different than what was on the budget and what got paid. Monty had some stories that he shared with me later, but I mean, you know, Jamie was what Jamie was. He was a, he was a hustler to the nth degree. He, uh, he was a nice guy. He was a fun guy to be around. I mean, People call him a little bit of a con man, but, you know, most con men are pretty good at, you know, gaining your confidence. That's why they call them con men. You know, they're charming. They're funny. Um, we had good times. We saw a hell of a lot of great fights, put on some great shows. 
with him. But uh, yeah, he had a way about him. He was uh, not always on the the up and up. And I mentioned his uncle. You know, when when I got news of his passing, probably about two weeks went by, and I'm sitting at my desk at work, and my cell phone rings, and I look at it, and it's got the caller ID, and it says Jamie Levine, and I answered the phone, and I said. You fucking scumbag. You faked your own death. Holy <laughs> shit. Where, where are you? And it was his uncle on the phone. He said, no, this is his uncle. I was just calling, going through his contacts and letting some of his friends know something or other. I don't remember what it was. I was like, oh, shit, sorry. That's hilarious. But that's Jamie. That's, that's Jamie. Jamie. I mean, you got to laugh at it because that's Jamie. <laughs> You know, yeah. when you mentioned it, too, about, like, having fun and just crazy stuff at the shows, mm -hmm. the, that Rome, Georgia show, he bought, like, this annoying, yippy little dog with him everywhere he went. He had it in his hands, in his hotel room, everywhere. It's like, nutty things like that. It's like, and if you asked him a question about pay or anything like that, he had more attention. He'd run off with the dog. <laughs> this is crazy. I guess, he, I guess he was ahead of the time bringing dogs places he shouldn't be bringing. Uh. <laughs> yeah. One of... The one interesting aspects of your relationship with Jamie Levine is the UFC at this time was not doing enough shows in order to, you know, keep all the fighters happy, allow them to, you know, work, you know, without work and, and fighting full time. You had funded the match between Pele and Pat Militich in the WEF when Militich was the UFC champion. Do you remember that fight? I believe that was on the Rome Georgia show, wasn't it, Miguel? Was it as yeah. in, I said, okay. Pat Militich got his hand or uh, Paley got his hand raised while Militich was the UFC champion. Did you have any conversations with the UFC at this time over that fight? Well, you telling me that UFC funded it's the first I've ever heard of that because back then I thought I funded it. So no, no, that you may funded. Have been, that no, may have been another. That may have been another story from Jamie where he got paid twice on the fight. I don't know. Um, no, I don't, I don't remember there being any controversy about that being for a UFC title or anything along those lines. I mean, if I recall the fight, you know, Militich's back went out on him and he had to stop halfway through, like right yeah. at the end of the first round. Um, but I don't recall that being like for a UFC title. No, no, no. I, I think I misspoke. He was the UFC champion at the time and lost while outside of the organization. And that's quite a big black eye for an organization like the UFC. When, now it would be certainly, but you know, back then, I, man, what were they doing? Three shows a year. It's like I don't think they care. I think they were happy to have their one of their fighters get paid by somebody else to do something. Yeah, I figured maybe they could have been a rub with yourself and and, and that was in New York back in Jamie in two thousand one. Bob Myrowitz sold the UFC, you know, to Zufa, the Fertitas, and Dana. You were known, obviously, to have put your hat in the ring with that. I had always wondered, John Peretti came forward and said that he had a secret partner in regards to it. Was that you trying to get a second seat at the table, or did Peretti have somebody else with him? That, that was me with Peretti. He, had, he reached out to me. Okay. God, I don't know who put us together or not, but he reached out to me and, and said that he had a, a deal in place to buy the UFC and needed a partner. And... Uh, I went and met with him a few times and we came to an arrangement on, you know, what our deal would be internally. And then we went and negotiated the deal with Meyerowitz. Were you surprised that uh, the Fertitas, you know, 
got that at the time? Well, you know, we, we had the deal we made was a half a million dollars to Meyerowitz. We were buying 51% of the company. Meyerowitz was going to keep 49%. And I was putting up an additional million bucks as a loan to the company, which would go to fund their losses while they were still trying to get back on pay-per-view because they had lost their pay-per-view funding. So they were, you know, the only access they had was, was direct TV, which was in so few homes at the time, it wasn't much money. So they were trying to get back on cable pay-per-view because John McCain spearheaded an, an effort to get them removed from cable, called up his buddy who ran one of the major cable companies out of New York or something and got them to take it off. And then everybody followed suit. It's kind of funny. You, you could buy porn on pay-per-view back then through cable, but God forbid you buy, you buy, you buy an MMA fight. So we made the deal and we were in the due diligence stage. Um, I had to put up 200,000 of the 500,000 had to make that available to them immediately because they were doing the show in New Jersey that, uh, that the commissioner Larry Hazard agreed to temporarily sanction one show. If you recall in New Jersey to the athletic commission and, and the Nevada Athletic Commission was going to send some reps to watch it. And if, if it went well, they were going to consider, you know, sanctioning an event. And then everybody, you know, the plan was if it got sanctioned in Nevada, every, all the other commissions would follow suit. If they got sanctioned by the commissions, they could get back on pay-per-view. So of the $500,000 fee to purchase the company, $200,000 was up front. They needed that money to fund that show. So I, I paid two hundred grand immediately. They used that to do that show in New Jersey. And right after that show, I stopped getting return calls from Myrowitz's side. His brother was a lawyer in New York who was handling the transaction from his side. And I couldn't get anything from him. I couldn't get anything from Myrowitz. It's just like they stopped returning my calls. They had, they were playing some games leading up to respect to giving me the, the contracts and, you know, every piece of due diligence that I offered, I'd ask for shit. It would come scribbled on a piece of paper um it was it was kind of a joke but right after that show it just it went dark they stopped returning all my calls so we had a closing date set where i was gonna have to put up a million i was gonna have to give them the extra 300 grand for the doubt for the payment plus i was gonna have to put a million dollars in escrow to fund the fund the company over the next 12 months and i couldn't even get a return call so i knew something was up so I started digging around and I eventually found out that the Fertitas had come in and signed a deal with Bob to buy a hundred percent of the company. Um, I didn't even know who the hell they were at the time. So I started doing some research on them and then I saw their connections to the Nevada commission and who they were and how deep their pockets were. And I basically said, well, fuck, I'd rather these guys buy it than me. I just didn't want to go out of business. I wasn't trying to, blow this thing up and turn it into a billion dollar major sports franchise. I just didn't want to see it go out of business. So shit, you know, I wanted a place for my guys to fight and wanted the company to go on. And I thought if these guys want to do it and lose a bunch of money out of their pocket and hope that it eventually turns around, great, let them do it. But can I get my 200 grand back? And uh, the answer from Meyer would turn out to be no on that. So I ended up having to sue him for that and litigate that for a few years. But uh, I was happy to back off when, I saw who was getting involved because I thought, man, these guys have a much better chance than I would have of making this thing successful. They'd have better access to getting it sanctioned, getting it, uh, you know, put through the commissions and hopefully getting a TV deal. And that was obviously going to be the key. So 
it didn't bother me in any way, shape, or form losing the deal. I didn't, I didn't like getting screwed out of my two hundred grand. Yeah. Well, you 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 paid for the audition for the Fertitas. Okay, maybe. <laughs> yeah, that's what so, you did. <laughs> now let me ask you, because at this point you had uh, a show in Florida that was pretty officially your show, and you still probably were helping out other shows and stuff. Did you? envision that the UFC would be running weekly shows and that, that you would basically be able to sunset the promotions because that's kind of what it seems like happened you know you you put up fights for your guys when there weren't any and then there wasn't a time where there weren't any anymore is that a fair transition as to why you pulled out of promoting or were you just burnt out um that's funny you know nobody really ever asked me what I was my plan was if if the deal had gone through my plan was to call WWE and offer half of my stake to, to Vince McMahon for free if he would use his connections to get it on television. That was, that was my plan. <clears throat> um, and if that didn't work, we were just going to stick with the same, you know, the same plan of doing a few shows a year, three, four shows a year, try to keep them small, not spend a lot of money, and just work on getting it sanctioned. Because once it got sanctioned, it get back on pay-per-view, eventually get some type of TV slot, like pro wrestling, pro wrestling historically always used television to build up to their pay-per-views. It's kind of gone full circle with them. Now there really are no true pay-per-views in WWE. That's all network driven and they make all their money on television. But back in the territory days, the pro wrestling promotions actually paid for their television just to drive their house shows and their ticket sales, which is where they all their revenue was. And then when pay-per-view became popular, you know, then they would use the television to set up their pay-per-views. Now all their money comes through through network television deals that's where all their revenue comes from and you know aew still does a few pay-per-views a year and wwe's are part of their you know ten dollar a month network fee but that was my plan try to get it on television somehow to build the pay-per-views that we would do and then once the pay-per-views got successful then try to add add shows if i wasn't able to make a deal with with wwe but you know none of that none of that ended up happening um the reason I got into promoting shows is we were, you know, we were going and we were helping out other shows to get our guys fights. Um, and then one of our guys said to me, Hey, you know, between flying out to these shows and bringing everybody out and getting them out, we could do our own show in Florida, you know, for probably the same amount of money. Um, so as you know, we, we reached out to you guys to help us do that and set up the, the, the fights. And, and that's how AFC was born. And then we started doing AFC and the plan was just doing it to get people fights. You know, we just wanted to get our guys fights and we weren't trying to pad records. We wanted to see if guys could fight and succeed, which is why, you know, a lot of our guys lost a lot of those fights. We weren't trying to get them, you know, easy tomato cans as opponents. We were trying to match them up accordingly and get them ready for bigger shows and, you know, ferret out the ones that would make it and wouldn't make it. And after Dan, about Dan, if I may interject, you guys would send your murderers to take care of all the big ticket sellers. I think, I remember like, cause I'm from the Midwest, being at these regions, your guys would walk in and like all uniformed out in their track suits and like the local people, ah, they don't know what they're getting into. Our guys gonna beat them up. And I'm just sitting there like, I don't think you're reading this situation right. <laughs> you guys well, you know, murdered ticket sellers all over the country for free on your dime. But we, but we didn't make those fights, you know. We no, were just sending the guys. No. We said put them up against whoever you want, you know. But yeah, it's, it's it. We we started to get a little bit of a, a less of a welcome mat at some of those shows that we were going out to when that happened. So we started doing our own shows, 
And as when the ultimate fighter hit and the UFC started doing well, a lot of new promotions sprung up. I mean, for a while, Miguel, you guys were like the only show in town. And then there were, you know, you and Monty, a couple shows out there. And then we started doing our shows. There weren't a lot of options out there for guys to get fights, but you know, I never promoted a show in Florida that I made money on. Hell, I don't, I think I may have broken even on one out of the 20 shows we did. So when a lot of shows started springing up around the country, small little local shows, because the UFC started to become popular. Then I looked at it and said, well, shit, I don't need to do shows at all. I got plenty of places to get my guys fights. So we backed off of doing shows then. Yeah. Hey, now, let, let me ask you, sorry, Mike, but let me ask you now, let's talk about your guys because uh, along this is the creation of American Top Team. And uh, we have a inception story, I think, from Alex Davis. It's a pretty good source, but I'd like to hear it from you. Like I, when I knew you, you were already a brown belt. So, you know, aside from the respect you command in one way, you also command it in the other way, which is different than a lot of promoters. But how did all that start out? I heard that you kind of got privates and then, you know, you were going at seven in the morning for like judo privates with Alex and uh, Laborio. Why don't you fill us in on how you got involved with Laborio, who's the guy who's top teams face now? Um, well, I First of all, Labore hasn't been part of our team for like seven years. Yeah, he left. Uh, so he, he's been gone a long time. But uh, he was certainly there when we when we made the switch over to American Top Team and started bringing in a lot of fighters and went from being like a pure jujitsu team into an MMA team. Basically, you know, in 95, I was watching Peretti's organization, Extreme Fighting, and did his first show. And Conan Silvera won the heavyweight tournament, and they said he had a gym in Miami. So as soon as I heard that he had the gym in Miami, you know, I'm watching UFC for a couple of years and, and watching the pancreas and the UWF and you see what the jiu-jitsu guys and the grapplers are doing to everybody. You're thinking, wow, this is the coolest thing in the fucking world, man. I, I want to learn this shit and be Superman. So I'm like, I'm going to go find this place. You know, there's, I couldn't hop on the internet and find anything back then. So I'm like looking in the yellow pages, trying to find it. Conan's gym in Miami beach and uh, couldn't find it, ended up getting in my car and just driving down there looking for it and ended up going into some type of karate equipment store or something and asked them if they knew where it was, and they did. And I went down to his gym and signed up with him and started taking private classes with Conan and his brother Marcelo. That was back in 95. And for the next, you know, probably the next four to five years, we were primarily a jujitsu team. We used to try, we had a probably a group of like 12, 13 guys who trained a lot together. And that's when Naga started going across the country. And, you know, we would just go to wherever there were tournaments and we'd compete. And some of the younger guys then decided they wanted to fight. So we had a couple of guys fighting, not a lot. Um, and then in 2000 is when Laborio came over to the U S he just wanted to come over for like six months and crash in a place and learn English and, he was recuperating from some type of injury. So he came over and started training with us. And, you know, not too long after that, we started thinking, man, you know, we could, we, we really see this sport as something that's growing. You know, the MMA side is way more fun than the grappling side. It's got a lot more upside in our opinions. Why don't we see if we can just kind of like ride the wave of this sport and become an MMA team and grow along with the sport, which was primarily UFC at the time. It still is, I guess. So, Laborio decided to move over full time. Him, Marcelo, Conan, and myself. We switched over from Silvera Brothers Jiu Jitsu to American Top Team. 
you know, Laboria was one of the early guys with, with Brazilian top team. So we were kind of like a cousin of them. He gave up his interest down there and started over here. And then we, like I said, we just kind of just like grew as, uh, with the business. So Laborio had quite a big reputation back then. And there was a rumor pre-American top team. I don't know if you were there or not, but I, I hope you had heard about this that Liborio and Hickson had a private rolling session in California. Were you there for that, present for that? No. Did you ever hear about it? I did not. Never heard okay. that story. I heard you it know, was pretty one-sided. You know, back then, you know, MMA was basically jujitsu. You know, I mean, the, the grapplers were winning everything back then, and it's – it's kind of funny how crazy this, I mean, the sport's still really young in the context of a major sport and it's evolving really quickly. I mean, in my opinion, karate is more important in MMA right now than, than jujitsu is. People don't win fights from their backs anymore. You know, you still see some, some submissions from top, but shit, most of those submissions are catch wrestling positions or very low level jujitsu positions. Um, it's just crazy how the sports evolved. So, you know, back then, you know, Laborio was a jiu-jitsu guy. Conan was a jiu-jitsu guy. Marcella was a jiu-jitsu guy. That was basically our coaching staff at, at, at the very beginning. You know, you fast forward now, and I think we've probably got maybe 17 or 18 coaches on our payroll, and one of them is a jiu-jitsu guy. You know, we've got wrestlers. We've got, we've got striking coaches. Uh, but, you know, we got a ton of good grapplers in the gym, but we've got one main puddle as our, our main jiu-jitsu coach. Um, it's just how the sports evolved. But back then, yeah, we were we were basically a jiu-jitsu team where guys started fighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jiu-jitsu has kind of nullified itself. It's been nullified by, by wrestling, catch wrestling. It really, it really has. I mean, it's just, you know, guys, I mean, outside of a Charles Oliveira or a Brian Ortega, who's winning fights on their back anymore? You know, people say Damian Maya may be the best jujitsu guy ever in MMA. He wasn't winning fights from his back. He was taking your back, yeah. you know, and, 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 win, and winning fights. It's just the old saying, you know, the black belt gets punched in the face and turns into a brown belt, punched again, turns into a purple belt. You know, it's just, it's kind of true. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, your first AFC that you did was in Fort Lauderdale, December 13th, 2002. You had a Hermes Franca fight, Ryan Diaz as the main event. Do you remember like that, that card in general, like Wes Sims, Conan, uh, Aaron Riley, Alexandre Barrios, Matt Hume, Sean Payne Peters, Nick Aguilar, Kate Swallows, and Govea versus John Fitch? That is a sick lineup. Has has Hume let go of Payne Peters' arm yet? I haven't checked because <laughs> I remember that night it was really hard to get him to let go. He still has it. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that was a. Uh, that was a crazy night. You know, it's funny because you mentioned Wilson and John Fitch. And I think that was John Fitch's first fight. It was a 205. Um, and he obviously he made his career at 170. But I remember Wilson, Wilson landing a, a big knee in a clinch and, and, and knocking Fitch completely cold. And then being at a hook and shoot show, I don't know how many months after that, but it was it was Fitch against Solomon Hutcherson, yes. and 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 Fitch ended up down on his hands and knees in a scramble, and and Hutcherson got disqualified for soccer kicking him in the head, and Fitch again had to get carried out. So I had seen this guy that I had never heard of twice in a relatively short period of time get 
just knocked dead. And I remember looking at, I remember, yeah, he was stretchered out, right? I remember looking at somebody standing next to me as he was getting stretchered out in the hook and shoot show and saying, man, this poor guy should find something else to do for a living. And then I remember looking back when the guy won like a hundred fights in a row, was getting ready to fight GSP for the title. I was like, yeah, I guess I had that guy wrong. <laughs> yeah. 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 I thought he was wasting his time. I honestly thought he was wasting his time. Me too. Now, how did you like it? One of the things is that you're obviously astute with the sport and you, you see things like that, but how did you handle that when it got like personal on your team with like, you know, cause it looked at times where like, they brought you world beaters from Brazil as there were so many down there. And then it looked like a couple of the guys may have been friends or, or, or closer to the heart and they're kind of helping out, but like they weren't always AA listers. How did you distinguish weed that, them out. About that and, and weed them out or, or keep them, you know, depending on what your wants were? I mean, I guess it depends on what point in time you're asking the question. If you ask it from 1995 through 2005 we didn't know what the fuck we were doing i mean who did seriously who the hell knew anything about running an mma team back in the 90s there was no manual to follow there was no history to follow nobody knew anything you know we we didn't i'm surprised we didn't get people killed in training the way we handled things um as far as running the team back then it was just kind of a fraternity you know a boys club just having fun you're all your friends you're trying to keep everybody happy and fitting round pegs in a square holes just to try to, you know, give everybody what they need. Um, that's probably the biggest difference between the first 10 years of our existence. And then the last 15 years or so of our existence, we finally, after a period of time said, fuck man, this is, this is a real sport. We need to treat our team like a real sport. You know, we need some structure. We need discipline. We need rules. People need to be held accountable. You know, and I mean, if you if you walk into our gym, you know, we've got we've got coaches who have the training sessions mapped out, the partners mapped out. We've got times that we start, times that we finish what you're supposed to bring equipment wise. If you come late, go fucking home, you know, go disrespect somebody at home. Don't disrespect our team by showing up late. You don't have your mouthpiece. Get the fuck out of here. Go get a mouthpiece. You're chewing gum. Get off our mat. You know, you, you come bringing some friend out of the blue. Hey, this is my buddy. What the fuck? You know, you think the Dallas Cowboy wide receiver brings his friend who place for the Philadelphia Eagles to, to, to training camp to, you know, go run some pass routes, get the fuck out of here. You're not part of our team. So it's just, we, we try to run our gym like a professional sports team. This is a major sport. Let's show it the respect it deserves and, and handle it as such. So for the first 10 plus years, no, we were clueless. We, it, we did a really bad job and, you know, the results kind of showed it, you know, we, you win some, you lose some. And, you know, now it's gotten so competitive and people are so good and so well-trained. It's, it's like, I mean, if you win half your fights at like the UFC level, you're doing a really, really good yeah. job. But it, it really comes down to like which ones you're winning. You know, we've had shows, I mean, we've had nine people out of 13 fights, you know, that were ATT guys on a UFC show before. But whether you go seven and two or two and seven, whether it was a good night, depends on which ones you want. You know, I remember one night, I think we went seven and one but we lost the, the title fight, you know, and everybody's leaving sad. So, you know, we win a lot more fights now than, than we used to, but at the highest level, we, we might win 55% of our fights at the UFC level, maybe on a good year, 58%, of it, but it's the ones you win. But back then it was just, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. And uh, it took us a long time to figure it out. And I think that's 
maybe one of the advantages we have over a lot of other gyms. We've been around longer than most gyms and we've done it on a bigger scale. So we've had a lot of opportunities to make mistakes, made a ton of mistakes, but we learned from them. So some of the mistakes other gyms are making right now, we've already made those mistakes and we learn from them. So, you know, I think our advantage is just having made more mistakes than other people. Is, what is the reason you guys closed your gym to the public? Uh, when COVID hit, obviously everything shut down. Uh, we never shut down our pro training though, because, you know, Dana made it pretty clear. I'm not staying, I'm not staying shut down for long. I'm going to be opening up for fights as soon as possible. Well, he can't turn the switch on and say, I got to fight next week and not have guys training to be ready for those fights. So we kept our gym open from the day COVID hit, um, not to the public, but just to our private fighters. And we had cops coming to our door every, every day and condo commandos in the area calling in saying there's cars in this parking lot, people, you know, domestic terrorists in there breaking the vaccine rules and the fucking lockdown rules and blah, 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 whatever. But uh, we stayed open and we kept our fighters training. UFC started putting on shows sooner rather than later. So we never missed a beat on that. But, you know, during the period of time where nobody was allowed to have the public involved, um, you know, people stopped coming. Some people, some places opened up to the public sooner than others. And people started migrating out to other places to train. And then when it became easier and, you know, accepted to open up to the public, I didn't want the public getting in and, you know, getting people sick. You know, I got people training for fights and big fights. I don't want the public around, you know, trying to contain it as much as we can. And then, you know, once it got to the point where everybody was comfortable being around other people, it was just kind of nice having the gym just for the pro fighters. You know, it was like, wow, you know, we used to have, you know, six buses bringing kids in, you know, from schools for after school. And, you know, a lot of kids would come for their classes and other regular people would come for their classes and they'd bring their brothers and their sisters and their moms and their uncles to watch. And, you know, it's cool having the public there because they feel like they're part of the team and they support your team. And it's kind of cool, but you know, it, it also wreaks a little bit of havoc in running a pro gym scheduling around those people you know, and it's impossible to completely schedule around them but it just got to the point i mean we have just about 100 pro fighters that train out of our gym and our gym's big you know it's forty thousand square feet but you get 100 fighters in there and all the coaches in there it's you know it, it fills the place up certain times a day and it just got to the point where i looked at the money that was being generated by the public coming in and weighed that against you know the luxury of not having them there and how much more efficient it made us feel as a fight team doing our job. And I thought, you know, the, 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 the benefit we got by not having the public there outweighed the, the benefits of having the public there. So we just never opened back up. Yeah. Like That's you've been comparing it to, to big time sports. It's like most big time sports have closed practices. I mean, they have some open for the public, but most, you don't, you never get a chance to see them. You know, the real. Yeah. Practice. I mean, we actually, we, we get a lot of grief from from people on the team that you know want to have an open door policy and bring their friends to train and their spouses to watch them and and we let certain situations in you know hey i've been here a while my my brother's in town can he come watch my training but man we got a system set up if you bring somebody in that's not part of our team you got to get permission in advance and if we see if we walk in there and see somebody that's not supposed to be there that didn't have permission we just walk up and tell them to get the fuck out you know and and you know, we get a little bit of a bum rap for that. They're like, man, what the fuck is this? You guys run this place like a bunch of Nazis. And my answer is no, I run it. We run it like professionals. You know, it's, that's, that's what we do. 
you know, like you just said, I mean, I, I give up about 50, 60 grand a month in, in profit that I could be, you know, putting towards the bills by not staying open to the public, you know, goddamn if I'm doing that just so everybody can bring their bro- brothers, fathers, sisters, boyfriends, girlfriends, cousins into the gym and, you know, take away the benefits we got by shutting it down to the public. It's a pretty private thing too. Like, you know, fighting and what takes place in the gym. It's deeply personal. It's very seldom talked about outside of it. And, you know, it's something that should stay behind closed doors for, for the most part. I agree. Not, not only that, remember the militage story. It's, it's also not mainstream. So you could literally have like a mom and pa with their kids kind of be shocked that guys really going at it. You know what I mean? And I think it was uh, Dave Strasser and Nate Schroeder were doing some wrestling, trying to take each other's pants off, like, you know, goofing around. And they got thrown out of the gym because they scared customers, you know? Yeah, it's it's not the easiest thing to mix with regular people who aren't overly exposed to it. I agree. It, it, you guys are kind of, I shouldn't say kind of, you guys are absolutely getting the cream of the crop of the beginners. So you guys have a guy there right now. He's got a world ranking in judo, Abbas Abbasov. You know, he's from Turkmenistan. He's 0-0 as a pro. And I think he's moving in, in, in over the by you guys. He's a little fucking killer. He's my 145-pound champion. I have never seen the dedication that he's got your typical Muslim. He's your typical Muslim fighter. Incredibly disciplined, dedicated, focused, just never gets off his beaten path. You know, we, we have people from all over the world at our gym now. It really is truly a melting pot, to use an old phrase. But, uh. You know, and, and everybody's got their stereotypes about, you know, the Brazilian fighters and the fighters from here and there. I will tell you this about fighters from, from Russia, from all the stand countries, because I can't even tell the difference between all of them. Mm-hmm. And we've probably been having guys from those that part of the world over for maybe like the last six or seven years. We, we started to have an influx of them. And we have a lot of them now. I have never had one problem no. with a Russian fighter whether it's a Muslim fighter, whether it's a Christian fighter, not one problem. These guys respect their elders. They respect their teammates. They clean up their shit. They help everybody on the team. They listen to their coaches. We got a guy who, who runs our gym, Richie Guerriero, who's our general manager, and, and <clears throat> he just finds it hilarious how much respect these guys have for somebody that's older than them. So he always tries to push the boundaries to see, because he's older than all of them, He'll walk up to the new guys that just walk in the gym and he'll just come out of nowhere and start slapping them. And these guys just cover up and cower up and they're like, no, no, no. And these guys are killers that would literally rip him apart if they wanted to. And he's like, they're not going to touch me. I'm older than them. They're just going to show me respect and tell me to stop. And it's like, I just get such a kick out of these guys. Um, they're, they're tough as shit, but they're like the greatest teammates you could ask for. So yeah, and, and we got we got quite a few absolute studs that are younger, people don't know about, you know. They're starting to learn about some of them, like the Armand Sarukians and the and 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 some of those guys there that Mozar, who's um undefeated now in the UFC, just had a really good fight with with Dan Ige. Um, but there's there's some killers in there. But I mean, even when you watch it, you, you turn on a UFC now, there's like six hundred and something people on the roster. You know, you think you're in the business. You think you're an expert in fighting. I don't know half these motherfuckers on these <laughs> shows. I like I don't even know who they are. 
but not a show goes by that I don't watch it and say, holy shit, who is this guy? Yeah. Look how good this guy is. It's just the level of athlete that's now getting involved in the sport. And when you start taking guys that are that athletic and then they start training at a relatively young age, I used to think, wow, how good is, is MMA going to be when young kids start training this stuff and become fluent in everything, you know, by the time they're adults, this level is going to take off. But I underestimated how important the athleticism is to the sport. And it used to be like, give me a great jiu-jitsu guy. Then it was, give me a good wrestler. And then it was like, oh, just give me somebody who's really well-rounded, has been doing everything since they were a kid. And now it's like, man, give me one of these Uber athletes, you know, because, you know, it's just, you know, size matters, you know, athleticism matters. And, and some of these young guys are coming in here and it's just, it changes the game. Yeah. Now, wait, you know, I, I got to sneak in there because Dan sure. left a little door open there. He said, these guys from the stands and stuff are no problem in the gym. That means that somebody's been a little bit of a problem with ATT. Why don't you share with us either a Jeff Munson story or some crazy from the 95 to 2000 that you had to deal with. Uh, maybe, Lombard, a, Monson. Yeah, maybe a hotel you had to pay for or something. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's, there's so many stories of just the nut jobs that we've had through our gym. I mean, for a long time, the barriers to entry to being involved in the MMA business, whether it was as a fighter or a manager or a coach, you know, or starting your team, like the, the barriers to entry were like zero, you know, and you had a lot of crazy people get involved in the sport. You know, I mean, we've had we had people coming in with fucking guns and, you know, people wanting to throw it out, people coming off the street saying, fuck this, you guys are all fake. I'm going to beat all your asses. And. You know, we'd have guys at our gym literally fighting each other for the right to beat the shit out of this idiot because everybody wanted them. It's kind of like that. Andy Reyes. Kind of like the Finding Nemo movie when the when the when the fish would jump up on the dock and all the seagulls would be like, mine, 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 mine. You know, these idiots would come off the street like the Gracie Challenge type shit, and all the fighters would be like, no, no, I saw him first. I get to kill him. But uh, you know, it's it's so different now. You know, people people you know they, they they treat it with respect they treat it seriously they treat it like a real sport and we've gotten really picky with how we vet people to get in our gym i mean i i mean it used to be where we'd say man where are we going to get the next generation of fighters and anytime we can find anybody who wants to come to the gym please come i don't care what weight you're at what level you're at we just need bodies and now it, i bet you we probably get 25 legit fighters that are in good promotions with good records a month reaching out to us saying, Hey, you know, we'd like to come and check out your gym. And we probably only say yes to a couple, two or three out of the 25, just because we have limited resources. You know, we don't want to, you know, we don't, I don't, you know, guy wants to come in. He's, you know, five and four in the UFC and maybe a fight away from getting cut. He's 155 pounder. And we've already got seven guys in the UFC at 155 pounds. And, you know, it's like, we'll just have to take a pass. It's not a good fit at this time, you know? So we've gotten really picky with how we vet fighters and getting there, you know, how we handle situations on the mat and how are so different now. It's don't have many of those stories anymore, but holy shit, where <laughs> there are too many to remember back in the day. You've had the police at your door more than one occasion, on more than one occasion. That's for sure. I've had coaches call the cops on fighters back in the day when <laughs> shit got ugly. I mean, it's like, you know, Tiago Silva ready to brawl with, Conan because Conan wouldn't let him beat up Kimbo Slice Kimbo's first day in the gym. It's like, it's like just 
Yeah, there was there were some crazy days back in the day. You mentioned Hector Lombard. We got we got lots of Hector stories. There was there was one guy who was a he was a college wrestler out of Missouri, and he came down with one of our guys who was from Missouri. And the guys, and he had started MMA training. He's like, I'm going to go down there. I want to train with Hector Lombard. And this is, you know, this is Bellator Hector back in the day who was just, and I love Hector. I still love Hector to this day, even though I tell him not to come back to the gym anymore. But he's still my friend. But, you know, Hector was kind of nuts. And he liked to go at it, didn't care who you were, what your weight was. 145 to 245, he's coming at you. And this guy's like, you know, I want, I want to train hard with Hector Lombard. And the guy that brought him down was like, no, no, you better – you better wait a little bit. Wait until you get acclimated before you try to go with Hector. That's a little bit of a different level and a different animal right there. No, no, I'm going to I want to go with him first day. And the guy gets here, and he was sick. So he took the first day off. So he's just sitting in the bleachers watching. And we had a, a, a K-1 guy from Turkey who was in town. It was tough as shit. And somehow or another, it was back when we didn't really put a lot of thought into who was sparring with who and what the consequences could be. It was just kind of like – throw him on the mat and see, see what, what happens. So Hector and this guy end up getting paired up. And I think it started out as like shadow boxing, but shadow boxing with Hector back in the day could get bloody. So no gloves. These guys start going at it. You know, and back then it wasn't like, Holy shit, jump in. It was like, Hey, who you got? You know, let's, let's, let's watch. So they start going at it and they're fucking going hard almost like a control going hard where they're enjoying it. And this kid that had come down that had never fought and just started training, but you know, wanted to call out Hector for training is just sitting there like with his jaw on the bleachers, like what the fuck are these guys doing to each other? And Hector and this guy are going hard as shit. The fucking bell goes off. The fucking round ends. You know, they just kind of like stare at each other to go to, to go their own separate ways. And Hector, you know, they're both busted up and Hector looks at this kid who's just sitting there staring at him. And Hector yells, welcome to the jungle, motherfucker. And the kid got up and turned around and left and never, never saw the kid again. But uh, that's just a, that's just what went on back in the day. And, you know, if you ask the guys at Militich and the guys at AKA and, you know, the guys at some of those early gyms. Yeah. That's just yeah. what happens. You know, it's like, who knew better? You know, now yeah. it's like, hey, what size gloves you have? This is Tuesday. You can't have eight ounce gloves. You need 10 ounce gloves. Go home. You know, it's, but back then it was gloves. What the fuck are gloves for? Now, let, let me ask you, uh, there are some guys that were tragic stories that you you kind of tried to help out and do some things. I'm remembering, uh, remember Fernando Terrere? Yeah. Did you, did you find I, him I, out of jail? I think you, you probably helped him out a lot. I remember he kind of went nuts on a plane that was landing in Florida. So that's, that's like your land that you probably, and, and talk about a guy who was elite, you know? Oh man. Highly, highly elite. Um, I got to tell you, I have a hard time remembering what I had for breakfast these days. Okay. I couldn't <laughs> tell you if I, I couldn't tell you if I did or not. Um, okay. You would ask me something before we went on air and mentioned a couple of stories. I'm like, Oh shit. I forgot all about that. Yeah. That, that happened. I've, I, don't yeah, I know there's just too many uh, for you to keep track of. But, yeah, Fernando Terry was a guy that I think they said was going to be American top team. I don't think he ever. No, he never was. The doors so, man, man, that's a what, shame. What about your dealings with Mark Kerr? Did you ever bond him out of prison? I uh, put him through rehab a couple of times, never out of jail. Okay. Mark was a 
Mark was a cool guy. He was a super nice guy. Um, as scary as he was, you know, looking and in the, in the cage, really nice guy had his demons, which are well-documented. Well-documented. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, you know, I don't think we ever had him fight on any of our shows, had him down to a bunch of them, talked to him about fighting for a bunch of them, but one thing always led to another and, you know, never, never came through. What about Marcus Aurelio? Um, January 11, 2004, he won the ZST Grand Prix. Um, it was kind of, in my opinion, it was not the coming out part of the American Top Team because you guys have already been there, but it was just kind of like a nice showpiece for the mantle. That was a big tournament. There were some good guys Huge in that tournament. tournament. <clears throat> big tournament. He uh, he won the tournament, and he was he was really good back in the day. He then signed a deal to go to Pride, and his first fight was God. I wish I could remember the guy's name. He ended up in the UFC, but he was one of their stars. They obviously wanted the hometown guy to win. They signed a fight at 155 pounds. Aurelio goes over there for the fight. He was a big dude back in the day. Probably walked around at like 190. Cut weight to 155, weighed in for the show, did the pose down, all the stuff. Great. <clears throat> Back to the room. Couple IVs. Knock on the door at like three in the morning. Hey, there's a problem. What's the problem? Uh, fight was supposed to be at 154 pounds, not 155 pounds. No, fight was at 155 pounds. You know, we, we can get the contract if you need it and show it to you, but it's 155. No, it's supposed to be 154. So he either has to make 154 or we're not going to pay him. And there's no fight. He can never come back. And uh, back then, I think he was going to make 20 grand for the fight, which was like making a million dollars back then. <clears throat> and he's like, they called me up in the middle of the night. And at least it was the middle of the night there. I don't remember what time it was where I was. And they're like, they explained the situation to me. And I'm like, fuck them. He's, like, he's probably like 170 something right now. And he's like, no, I got to make the weight. I got to fight. I'm like, fuck that. I'll give you the 20 grand not to fight. That's just ridiculous. Fuck those guys. No, they'll never let me fight again. I want to fight. I want to fight. Pride's the best place. And he ended up making weight at like 3.30 in the afternoon, the day of the fight. Ooh. And I remember him going out to the ring for the fight. And it was like a Gracie train, but it wasn't for show. It was basically holding him up because he could barely walk. He was so fucked up. Then he ends up fighting. And loses a split decision, go figure. <clears throat> but, uh, yeah, pride back in the day, it was like, say what you want about Dana White and the UFC. If you got their handshake, those guys have always been gold to me. I don't, I don't need anything in writing with anybody at the UFC. Pride, you could have a contract that thick. It doesn't matter what the fuck it says. Those guys just did whatever the fuck they wanted. They would look you right in the eye, stab their mother in the back and lay odds on which way she fell. Um, so yeah. yeah, just an Aurelio story. Miguel, didn't you have an issue with that? Maybe at the, at the hook and shoot regards to the 50,000 prize money with the ZST Grand Prix. Oh my. Yeah. Uh, Dan saved the day here. This is one of those times where, uh, we were doing a big show really close after that. And, uh, you know, we had fighters in from Finland and from, you know, Europe and stuff. And, and it's in Florida. And I, the week of the show, I got to send Dan an email that says, hey, look, this is the cash that's needed for the foreign fighters so that he brings it. And, you know, we can take care of them so that they're not cashing checks for a month. And I forgot that email this show. So 
it comes to be pay time and Dan walks in and Dan goes, Miguel, you know, you forgot the email. And he makes it be like that he didn't have the cash. So I go off to scramble and get my computer, see what I can do, you know, this, that, the other stuff. And when I walk out, Dan pulls out Aurelio's money that he was holding and paid everybody. <laughs> we, we, we paid him with Aurelio's money? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he paid everybody with Aurelio's money. And I, what I remember, too, is I came back, you know, with my computer. And Dan was already gone, took care of everybody. The fin Finnish guys were there. And they, they were, I was like, what, 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 you know, they're like, no, 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 it's taken care of. And I was like, you know, obviously Dan was way ahead of me, right? But he goes, and, and Marco goes, yeah. And Dan also called you an asshole. <laughs> Funny, I don't remember that, but that sounds, that sounds like something we would do. So, hey, yeah. Aurelio ended up coming in, coming in use for something or other. Good for him. <laughs> and you, you said the date on more than one occasion. Um, back in the day, Mark Lehman used to dub off people's instructional tapes and then sell them on eBay. And he wouldn't stop doing it. He would even like put like his own little header video, like, you know, knocked off by Mark Lehman ha, 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 at the beginning right. of it. And you sued him to get him to stop doing that. Chris Brennan told us that story in our interview. Is there any truth to that? Didn't did he do that with the ADCCs, Miguel? He did it. Yes. Yeah, he, he didn't. Is that why you felt okay? I got you. I remember him doing it with the with, with the Abu Dhabi show that we did in San Jose, and yeah. uh, I remember it being a problem. I don't remember what the fuck I did to stop it, but that sounds familiar, so probably true. Yeah, <laughs> some people yeah, just didn't give a fuck, you know. Yeah, he didn't care. Now, the, the other story similar, like a Dan Save the Day story, there, there was a big grappling show that, that went down in North Carolina. I think it was the first time that Hoyler Gracie grappled. Um, the promotion. The I don't remember the name of it. It was run by the Henzo guys from that area. And I think, if I remember correctly, that they claimed to have some type of sponsorship from like Palmolive or some type of big corporate thing like that. That fell through. And they had nothing there, and the tournament went down, and, and, you know, they had Brazilians and people that were getting, you know, a couple thousand bucks a match and stuff, and you had to take care of that whole thing. Do you remember that show in North Carolina? I think Saulo Ribeiro, Hoyla Gracie. I remember being at a, a, a really good grappling show in North Carolina, because I remember Matt Sarah had a match with Shaolin, and uh -huh. <clears throat> Shaolin was up on points, and it was – coming down to the real end. So Sarah was just getting like uber aggressive, you know, just trying to get something, you know, at, at the end to try to tie it up. And he like lunges at Shaolin. Shaolin hits this crazy shoulder throw. Sarah goes like into the lights, does a flip, lands on his feet, turns around and shoots a double leg. Didn't get it, but it was like the coolest thing I think I'd ever seen in a grappling match in my life. I guess he had that gymnast background and he was, he was in shape back then. This before he had ever fought. And I remember it was like, holy fuck, that was cool. So, yeah, I remember being at that show. Um, we had a couple of guys competing in it. I don't, I don't remember who competed. Not, I don't remember the money issue. Um, but that was probably one and the same. Yeah. Yeah, no, it was an amazing show. And, and the, they, you know, sold no tickets, which, you know, was, was a thing that, you know, happened back then. And, and again, yeah, everybody went home happy thanks to, you know, Papa Dan. So he doesn't like to take credit for it. And he no. never did. But... You know, no. the bottom line is is that kind of is what makes him 
who he is and important. You know, that's a, he would probably was, be happy if we didn't even mention these things. But yeah, I was just fucking young and making a ton of money back then. You know, when you're young and you start making money, you think you're going to make that amount of money the rest of your life. You know, it's like who fucking cares? You know, I get to see a really good grappling show. Who cares if I got to film a few bucks to help out? You know, wasn't that big of a deal at the time. So, Dan, we do tons of research on our guests. And upon when we interviewed Chael Sonnen, I stumbled across XFA5 that took place January 25th, 2003. Chael Sonnen and Trevor Prangley headlined it. And I looked at the rest of the card. There were six, there was like nine fights total or six fights on the card with one local guy that had a record of five and 21. So I asked Chael, did you even get paid for this? How many people were there? And he's like, dude, there was like 150 people there. And then I look at the card. I'm like, you know, Edson Dennis and Marcus Aurelio were on it. Did Lambert kind of bail everybody out? And he goes, man, I think you're right. I think he did. Is, do was you remember it, that card? Was that show down in, in, in South Florida? Was it in West yes. Palm? I remember that show. That was by a, that was a one and done guy who, uh, yeah. who promoted this. God, I want to say his name was Sean something or other. He was a, I remember the guy did the show and I remember those two guys being on it. And I remember the guy calling me like Sunday morning or something like desperate because he didn't have the money. And uh, yeah, I think I, I think I hooked him up. How, how does, I, okay. I'm sitting here in Chicago. How does somebody have the balls to throw a show, lose their ass, find your phone number and call and ask you to help them? Like I said, barriers to entry back then, man, they were like zero. They're just warned on the, the, the people that the people that came in and out of the business back then were just. Yeah, it's just something else, you know, story. I don't, I don't, I don't know what else to say. There were some there were some real characters back in the day in the sport. Yeah. Yeah. What about Marcelo Garcia and Pablo Popovich? Do you remember watching them grapple at ATT? Um, yeah. Yeah, they were. Now, as far as grappling with each other, I'm trying to rem- I don't think they were both at the gym at the same time. And obviously had both of them at the gym at different times and, you know, seeing them both training, training with both of them. Um, but I don't think they actually crossed paths. I think by the time Marcelo Garcia got down here. Pablo was already gone. I think. Okay. You, we, you, we had that match between the two that was, I think, was a, a super fight on one of the Abu Dhabi trials that we did. One there. of your call, yeah, one of your trial shows down in South Florida. They too, they had a match. I think and, Mar- and Marcelo won it. Yeah, yeah, I remember you were <clears throat> duly impressed. Let's say I think that was your first time maybe seeing him live. Yeah, do you remember the impact? Because it's like at that point you'd seen a lot, you know. But to see a guy like that all of a sudden and opens your eyes again, what that man? As as far as being a competitor, I mean, everybody says who was the best at this, who was the best at that, you know. And there's different levels of being the best. There's guys that you know you would see in the gym that you'd put a million dollars on in a match in the gym, but then those guys go and compete, and it's just fucking they don't have it. As far as being a competitor, pound for pound, who was a better competitor at grappling than Marcelo Garcia? I mean, that guy was a fucking animal. He was so good. And then until you feel him on the mat, it's like once you feel him, you're like, yeah, it's just like not of this world. He was he was so good. Um, and then, you know, 
obviously we saw what he did in in San Jose in that show when he when we had him at that show. He was yeah, that guy was amazing, just amazing, and what a nice guy. What a what a what a great dude he is. How yeah, would you compare him technique wise to Laboria? How, like Laboria versus Garcia, and, those are two of the. How would you compare him technique wise to Laboria? When we asked Mike Brown. I felt I had Mike Brown. He he said. Garcia was the best. And I was like, hey, I gotcha. Everybody says Laborio's the best. And he said, Garcia's closer to my size. He, he, but you felt both of them. Like, compare them for real fans. Like, who's, like, how, how different? Well, I mean, size and strength matters. You know, Laborio was, man, that guy was fucking strong as a bull, explosive as a bull. His grip was crazy. Um, it's hard to compare grapplers with different body types. You know, Laborio was short and stocky and, thick you know and you know it just you know if you ask me if those two competed yeah if they competed in the gym in a friendly little match at the gym with nobody watching you know laborio would win if they competed in a tournament i'd put my money on marcelo garcia all day and you know laborio probably would too i remember being at the gym one day when laborio was training with jeff munson and just fucking submitting them 10 times in five minutes and then as soon as the match was over and I said, hey, Lebo, if, if you guys competed in the final of Abu Dhabi tomorrow, what do you think would happen? He'd say Jeff would win 2 nothing, And he probably <laughs> would have, you know. Jeff was a fucking competitor. You know, when it came time back then and the, and the bell sounded, that was it. That was his fucking world. You know, so, you know, different types, you know. And I've trained with a million guys of all levels. Um, those are obviously two of the best. But, you know... You know, I'd say, you know, this was the best point guy I ever trained with. This was the best submission guy I ever trained with. This was just the strongest guy I ever trained with. And, you know, a lot of those guys you may never have heard of, you know, that never fought, never did anything um, or never even competed. Mm -hmm. I mean, the best the best submission guy that I ever rolled with in my life is the guy from MMA Masters, Daniel Valverde. I mean, fuck, just just unbelievable. And, and he's still doing it all these years later. I hear he's still fucking wrecking everybody down there. Just unbelievable submissions, you know, unbelievable submissions. But doesn't mean he'd win a, you know, in a tournament against someone he might, you know, he might lose by advantage. You know, yeah. you, you mentioned Pablo Popovich's name. Pablo was a great grappler, ended up beating Marcelo eventually in, in one of the ADCs. But, you know, Pablo was a point guy. He was a position guy. He was, you know, big, strong wrestler and just good top position, you know, and, and that's how he won just about all of his matches. So just different styles. What, what, what about meeting Mike Brown? When did you know he was going to be a good fit, you know, as a coach for you guys? Probably about when he probably, I guess he was training with us for maybe like the last seven, eight years of his career and probably about halfway through you just you watch a guy and how he analyzes things how he pays attention how he participates in class how he handles himself around the other guys you know we, we really try to groom our coaches from our fighters it's just you know do you have to be a great fighter to be a great coach absolutely not as a matter of fact you know most guys that are great, great fighters are just so naturally good at it. A lot of them don't take the time to learn all the particular details themselves because they don't need it, you know, much less gets a good enough grasp to teach it to other people and analyze what would be best for their games. But Mike was just such a student of the game. He was just such an MMA nerd. 
I mean, it's just all he wants to do in life and all he loved in life was that. And probably about halfway through his career, you know, I approached him and said, Hey man, I think you would be a really good coach when this is all said and done. So I'll tell you what, when you got a couple of years left, let me know. And we'll start get, putting you on the payroll and let you start coaching part-time that because coaching is so different than fighting, you know, your, your camps will probably get, you know, farther in between. You're going to slow down over the last couple of years, start coaching, start following the coaches around, start going to fights, cornering guys and learning how to be a coach so that when you retire, you'll have a, you know, you have a little bit of a head start. And he did. And, and, took to it like a duck to water and, and, and he's, he's an amazing coach and a great asset to our team. And, you know, we did the, we did the same thing with King Mo. We did the same thing with Tiago Alves. You know, it hasn't worked out with some of the coaches that we did it with and some of the fighters we thought would become good coaches. They didn't, they're no longer around, but uh, you know, Mike was a home run. King Mo's doing great. Tiago Alves is doing great. Um, Steve Mako started as a fighter for us and now Steve Mako and he's doing he's amazing. He's underrated, in my opinion. Uh, you know, I, it's, it, you, you talk about certain guys just you can't replace. You know, and people have asked me, hey, you know, if a meteor was going to hit the gym, you can only grab a couple of coaches. Who are you grabbing, you know, and hauling ass with to start over? And I'm like, well, fuck. You know, I'd probably have to grab Brownie. And, you know, Mako was just – it's not just how great of a wrestler he was. It's just how good of a coach he is, how dedicated he is. The fact that he's 240 or 50 fucking pounds and no matter who walks through that gym, he can take him down and beat the shit out of him and put some respect into him if he needs to. It's, it's just a combination of all of it. You know, he, uh, he's amazing. Yeah. And, you know, if you feel comfortable talking about this, great. If not, we can edit it out. I had thought Robbie Lawler winning the first world UFC title for the American top team. I thought he was going to be a mainstay and really, it seemed like he was becoming a part of the family, and then one day he up and leaves, but there's, there's really not a lot online as to why. Yeah, you know, sometimes you're close with people until you're not, you know? You know, he had a great run at the gym. I think when he came to our, our gym, I think he had lost, like, four out of five fights at Force, and they basically gave him a shot to go in and, and you know, win or leave the UFC when they acquired him, and he went in there and he fucking went on a run, man, found his groove and won a lot of fights and made a bunch of money and won a title. And it was great for the team and it was great for him. But, you know, after his fight with Woodley, who, you know, was part of the team as well, he just decided he didn't want to be there anymore. So what are you going to do? You know, how would you manage that? Like, um, like you had talked about Jim's making mistakes. You guys are kind of ahead of the curve because you've, you've been there and done that. One of the big issues you see, even with AKA, is they want two fighters from the same gym fighting, and then there's a whole bunch of drama, and like that, that weighs, like it lose weighs on the other people at the gym. You guys have somehow managed to avoid that. Um, eh, I wouldn't go so far as say we've avoided it. I mean, it, it happened with, you know, Robbie and T Wood fought for a UFC title. Um, when it was over, you know, Robbie left the gym after that. Was it because of that? Yeah, who knows. You know, sometimes it's just time to leave. Um, we've had we've had p two people fight for the million dollars in the PFL finale. We've got shit. Conan's son is fighting. Conan's Omar. Son's a stud. He is a stud. He's fighting a long time, a long mainstay of our gym, Omari Akhmedov, in the first round of the playoffs in a few weeks. And it's for the money. And I was at the gym today and, you know, 
Josh Silvera's in the cage, and, you know, we got the cage wrapped up for some privacy because he's fighting, and Amari's in the back room, and you know what we do when guys are fighting each other is we sit the guys down when, it, when it's inevitable, and we say, okay, here's how we're going to do it. You know, we're going to separate coaches. We're going to separate training partners. You guys can separate time of the day if you want to and come at different times. It is what it is. It sucks, but <clears throat> it's unavoidable in a situation like this, and sometimes it goes great, and the guys are like, fuck, no problem. I'll train with you if you want to. I don't give a fuck. And they handle it great. And sometimes it's it's hard for people to deal with. Um, I mean, I think I just saw an interview with Amanda Nunez that said part of the reason she decided to leave is because she didn't like having Kayla Harrison there thinking they might have to fight at some point in the future. And she didn't feel comfortable. I mean, it, it happens. I mean, I've had I've had people come to me in the gym and say, hey, I, I don't want you to bring in other 170 pounders in the UFC into the gym because I'm a 170 pounder in the UFC. And I'm like, well, if I took one person from every fucking weight class in the gym, a you'd have nobody to train with, and b you could do it out of my. I could do it out of my fucking garage. Why do I have a forty thousand square foot fucking gym? And c what the fuck do I do when you fucking leave? Cause you got married or fucking transferred or sick or tired or cut or whatever. Fuck you, you know. No, uh, nobody at our gym is bigger than the team. Um, if there's people that are good fits for us, we bring them in. Um, not everybody's meant for a big team atmosphere. Some people are better off being, you know, bigger fish in a smaller pond. Um, I don't think that's a real great mentality for long-term success. I think what makes our gym good is not the walls or how nice it's decorated or how big it is. And I don't even think it's how good the coaches are. I think it's the environment that we have with a lot of really, really good quality training partners. And it's very well structured so everybody can take advantage of it and get better every day. I think that's the key to it, <clears throat> but that's not for everybody. Not everybody wants that. Um, you know, we have a, a guy who competes at 125 pounds in the UFC right now named Muhammad Mokayev. And I was like 25 and 0 as an amateur, like at the highest level amateur shit they would do over in Europe. Countries would compete against each other. And he turned pro and he's also undefeated. He's 1-0 and in the UFC. He's getting ready to fight on the London card in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in like another 14 days or something like that. And he was trained in other gyms. And he says, man, I was like the best at everything in my gym. I'm the best wrestler. I'm the best striker. I'm the best grappler at my gym. How am I going to get better? You know? So he's like, I had to come here because I have, you know, I come here and I'm training with Kyoji and I'm training with Pantoja and I'm training with Adriana Moraes and Pedro Munoz. And he's like, and all these great guys are on my weight, my weight class. And I'm, I'm getting better every day because I have to, to survive, you know, but that's not, and, and that guy's going to be a star. I think, I think he's going to be amazing. But some people aren't good for that. They get in there in a bigger environment and, you know, they don't feel comfortable. They get anxious. They look for ways to dip out of training and stuff. It's just not for them. They'd be better off going to a smaller gym and being the big dog there and not getting pushed. And that's, it's for them. I don't think it's, like I said, I don't think it's a recipe for long-term success. If you're not going to be, if you're not going to get uncomfortable and get pushed in your own gym, how are you going to respond when you get uncomfortable and pushed, you know, in a cage in front of 15,000 people? Um, but that's just my opinion. Do you have a third party come in to kind of handle disputes? I mean, you had mentioned you know, here, you had T. Wood, Robbie Lawler, Masvidal, Colby, all within title shot, like range, and while well, one of them's wearing it, and you guys have them all in the same gym. Do you guys have like a third party just to kind of come in and play HR, or is that your job? That's my job. You know, we, oh my <laughs> God. We, we got a lot of people at our gym. We got a lot of people with a lot of experience at the gym, and um, it's relationship based. You know, there might be somebody 
that there's an issue with that I don't have the greatest relationship with. And maybe it's not best for me to go sit the guy down and talk to him and, and go through the issue or lay down the law or try to set him straight. So maybe it's a Conan situation or something that Richie handles, or maybe like one of his coaches. Um, usually it's me. Um, that's kind of my job most of the time and, and shit comes up, but you know what? You sit down, you go over it, you resolve it. If you can't get it resolved, you show them where the door is. I don't have contracts with anybody at our gym. You know, if you want to be here there, come on in and let's train as long as, and as long as it's good for the gym and good for you stay. If it's not good for you, or if it's not good for us, the door's right there. If you want to leave, leave. If we want you to leave, we're going to tell you to leave. And we're not shy about it anymore. I used to, like I said, he's trying to make a lot of round pegs fit in square holes and it just doesn't fucking work. You know, it's either if you got a little bit of a cancer, if in my opinion, there's a little bit of a cancer growing, you know, fucking get rid of it before it spreads. And if somebody at the gym doesn't want to be there anymore because they don't feel comfortable in their situation, doesn't matter if you fight in the prelims, if you fight in an indie show, a little small local show, or you, or you're a champion in the UFC, if it's not good for you. You shouldn't be there. You don't have to, come up with a reason you don't have to explain it to us just say it's not good for me go fucking go somewhere else sometimes change is good just for the sake of change let's talk about aew you've obviously transitioned you're one of the characters in aew and we're wrapping up i know we've taken a lot of your time japan you had mentioned when we started this interview you you were really into the japan pro wrestling scene and how it crossed over for shoot fights do you think mixed martial arts here in the United States, as we know it, will eventually cross over? You know, it, I, it's funny because, you know, being involved in both, you, you get the different perspectives. <clears throat> and there's, there's a percentage of fans who love MMA and hate pro wrestling and love pro wrestling and hate MMA. There's a percentage of pro wrestlers who hate MMA. And there's a percentage of MMA fighters who hate pro wrestling. But there's also a huge, huge group of people that really like both. Yeah. Um, there's a ton of guys in the AEW locker room who all they want to do is grab me and talk MMA. And there's a lot of guys at my gym that want to talk pro wrestling, that love wrestling. And there's a lot of fans that are fans of both. I think the ones that hate one or the other are a very loud minority. Um, as far as crossover, I mean, fuck, it already has. I mean, between Ronda Rousey and Brock Lesnar and – things of those nature, CM Punk, you know, you got people doing both. You got people that are emulating each other. At one point, the UFC tried to distance themselves so far from professional wrestling because they were getting regulated. They were getting sanctioned. They were trying to get gambling, you know, to become the norm. And they didn't want to be associated with something that was scripted. You know, we can't let people think that this is scripted or how can they bet? And I think they were very conscious of, of how important it was to, did I lose you to have betting on the sport because it brings a lot of new eyeballs into the sport. Um, as a matter of fact, I remember being backstage after Tiago Alves lost the GSP at UFC 100 and somebody calling me and saying, Hey dude, you guys left your flag out at the cage. We used to always bring our, our flag and drape it over the cage. And I'm like, Oh fuck, you know, that's our flag. That thing's been all over the world. You know, we used to use the same flag for every fight. So I'm walking back out trying to find our flag when Brock is fighting Frank Mir in the main event. And the fight's actually going on, and I'm walking around the cage looking for our flag. And I finally find it, and the fight wasn't long. The fight's over, and I'm standing next to a higher up in the UFC, and Brock cuts that promo he cut at the end of that fight, you know, pulled the lucky horseshoe out of his ass, beat him over the head with it, you know, 
drink a Coors Light or roll yeah, my light. Light. Epic yeah. fucking promo. And like there was steam coming out of this guy's ears. He was so upset at the guy at Brock cutting that promo because he didn't want to blur the lines of the real UFC and the scripted wrestling. And I looked at him and said, you don't even smell that, do you? And he's like, smell what? And I'm like, the fucking money that's coming out of that cage right now from that promo. You don't even fucking understand it. You know, you just so blindly hate everything wrestling. You're a fucking moron. And I mean, Brock was such a huge draw, you know, in part because of some of that. Um, but, you know, over the years, they've obviously softened up on it. And, you know, you've had some characters come out and try to cut some MMA, I mean, pro wrestling type storylines. And sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, sometimes it works in wrestling and sometimes it doesn't. It, um, it, it really comes down to when it's your personality and it's really you and it's the real you coming across, people buy into it. When it's not, people don't. I mean, Conor McGregor, the guy's got a shit ton of charisma. He talks shit. He's great at talking shit. And it seems natural when he does it. Then you got somebody else doing it. And, you know, somebody might like listen to something like that Henry's, Henry Cejudo says, and they might not think it sounds, you know, real natural. And they might not buy into it. But it's, it's no different than professional wrestling. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say it's already crossed the lines and, and blurred the lines. They share a lot of the same executives. Like one executive will leave one organization to go to the other. You know, their business model is somewhat similar. I, I hope one day they're, they're sharing talent, truth be told. I, I can't tell you how many times over the last 25 years an issue came up, whether it was talent relations or promotional wars or, or, or other issues. And I'm watching it in MMA and I'm like, I've already seen this movie before. 1982, WWE, Vince McMahon and this. And I've already seen this before. I already know how it's going to end. You know, it's like, fuck, these guys don't know the history of pro wrestling or they they would have learned from it and applied some of it to the to to MMA because it's it's amazing how how much crossover there really is. And I, I, I was just telling people last week in the locker room at AEW that it's funny how similar the personalities are, you know, between the fighters and the pro wrestlers backstage. Um, it's kind of funny. Yeah. In the, talk about education. The amount of fighters that I have met that came right out of prison at some point or another that'll sit here and say, well, you know, I really like this and that about Europe and in Russia, they kind of do this. I really enjoy that as well. There's components of life that people that are maybe not have a high level of school education have that just absorb and, and suck up because of the sport of fighting. It's, it's incredible how educating and how it just brings people together from all different cultures. There's no doubt about it. What does Dana say? It's in our DNA and everybody loves it. You know, they fuck. I mean, if you're driving down the road and two bums get in a fight on the side of the road, what do you do? You know, you, yeah, you watch that. You hit your brakes and you're watching it. Yeah. You no, know, I mean, you might go and see the highest level of MMA in the world on a daily basis, but two people get in a fight. Fuck, I'm in. You know, I want to watch it. It's just, yeah. it's just the way there's, we there's are. A there's a comedian with a great line that nobody ever left the fist fight to go watch the band play. Ain't no doubt about it. <laughs> you know, in regards to, I mean, you kind of rewind and two things. In regards to the Muslim fighters that you talked about, I don't think there's been more of an educational tool for the rest of America in regards to the Muslim community and what their culture is all about than has been brought about by fighting. Like it has really opened up a lot of people's eyes and created healthy conversations. 
I mean, at the end of the day, people are people, right? You know, yeah. are they different in different parts of the world based on how they're raised and what they believe? Yeah, they are. You know, and if I was born in fucking Afghanistan in some fucking cave and raised by people who told me to hate America and America is the enemy, I'd probably think that, you know, but that's a small percentage of that community and that population yeah. in the world. You know, the, the guys at our gym, fuck, it's just, it's just, they get there and they're all ATT. They're all teammates and they're all helping each other. And it's, it's cool as shit. And I, I think like it goes back to what you said, there's something about fighting that's just different than other sports and certainly other regular jobs that these guys are in there. They're, they're, they're training hard. They're working hard. They're learning from each other. And, you know, people think MMA is an individual sport and it might be three Saturdays out of a year, you know, but the other 362 days of the year, MMA is a team sport and you need you guys on your team. You need the coaches, you need your teammates, you need everybody to help you to get you to where you want to be. And inside the gym, there's a, a real high level of respect and camaraderie that, you know, I'm sure it exists in other sports to a similar, to a certain degree, but I don't think it reaches the same level than it does in fighting. No, let's close with Kimbo slice. Who brought Kimbo to the gym? What was he like while he was there? I'll answer the second part first. Cause I don't remember who brought him to the gym. Um, it's just, really, I think the soon as Masvidal. <clears throat> probably, probably was. Yeah. Um, super humble, super cool super quiet um just respected everybody i mean he he gave that that promo he cut after his ken shamrock fight in in bellator where he said i think it's probably one of the the biggest pops i've ever had in mma one of the coolest things i've ever seen he said something then he goes att oos and he like bowed and said oos and i said that's fucking kimbo slice bowing and saying oos it was he was super cool everybody at the gym absolutely loved him maybe outside tiago silva um but a uh, super good guy i mean just just a great guy how did he adapt to training there because he was like in his 40s when he became famous and yeah. it's a deep pool to jump into it's it's an incredibly deep pool and you know you saw him fight you know i i wouldn't want to you know i wouldn't want to go backyard with him and you know and throw hands <laughs> fuck that you know but you know i mean him at the gym i mean trying to do jujitsu and doing things like that. I mean, what are you going to do at 40 years old beat up? You know, I just, come on. It's, I mean, I, I think what he was able to accomplish in the sport was, was pretty fucking cool considering how old he was when he got into it and how late he got into it in the game. And, you know, he won, won, won a little bit in the UFC, won some in Bellator, made a bunch of money. Um, but fuck, I mean, you walk into our gym, one of the first pictures we have hanging up on the wall is a picture of Kimbo Slice. You know, walk into the Bellator cage wearing his shorts with an ATT logo on it, and fucking everybody at the gym's proud of that. He was, Dude, he was another, another one. You guys had Butterbean with the American Top Team logo oh, on his Butterbean too. Was great, dude. He is so not. Watch his fight with Cabbage Carrera, the first one. Cabbage swore he was going to stand with him. Cabbage knocked his teeth out, allowed him to remove his mouthpiece, spit the shards out, put it back in, and they continued to fight. Butterbean's legit. He was legit as hell. That's another guy you don't want to get hit by. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I got one memory too that, that you got to confirm a rumor for me. That, you know, this was uh, after we had done our run of shows together. And you, you, you received a phone call from Vlad, the Russian promoter, 
And you were like, Miguel, you know, why don't you go, uh, you know, I gave your phone number to these guys. Why don't you go check out? And you, we did the Euphoria shows. And I think you came to the Euphoria shows. I did. Like, with a little bit of freedom and having fun. You know what I mean? Because Atlantic City, I heard rumors that you guys got the suites at the hotel. You cleared out all the furniture and ATT did some tournaments up there. Now, please confirm. <clears throat> that That is 100% true. I mean, hotel rooms back in the day did not like us very much because uh <laughs> if, if it was a small hotel room we were just we were going at it in those rooms if it was a big room like a suite in new jersey and you know i used to like to gamble a lot and in new jersey they don't get a lot of big gamblers so you don't have to be the biggest gambler in the world to get like these giant twelve thousand square foot rooms and man we we got up there the, the for one of the four year shows saw that was, oh man let's just let's move all the furniture out I mean, Minotaro was the pride champion, and he's in there with a circle of guys going at it with guys, and people were betting. You know, we were we were just betting on shit, you know, whether the guys were just who can pass who's guard, who can submit who. Well, fuck it. Let's fight. Let's see who goes, you know. Let's go hunting. It was just just fun, you know. The the people in the neighboring rooms didn't like it. We'd get knocked underneath the security, but, yeah, that's all true. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had fun too. I'm sure the uh, was there any broken furniture anytime it got out of hand or anything like that, or everything stayed all the time. All the time. All the, all the time. I, yeah. I remember being at one of your hook. I think it was one of your hook and shoot shows. You guys had like a Ramada that you always use, and I remember going at it with Padumpa, who's our head jujitsu coach, and he had just come over. Eh, maybe he wasn't there that long at the time, and we start going at it in the room talking shit. And all right, let's go. And he, and he jumps guard. And I remember he jumps guard and we were like right by the bathroom and the bathrooms of that Ramada, the sink was outside the bathroom. There was like a little small bathroom and then outside the bathrooms where the sink was. And he jumps guard like right by there. And I looked at him, I said, dude, I think this is your first hotel fight. You don't ever jump guard in a hotel fight. And I had him like underneath the sink and trying to get his head tied up in the pipes and shit. And, he like goes to throw an elbow and he breaks the porcelain part of the thing. And then I'm, I'm grabbing that and hitting him in the head with it. And it's just, yeah, we were, we were young and stupid, but fuck, we were, we were having fun. Yeah, no, that's all. Awesome. Yeah. When the boss I, is breaking the hotel furniture, it's, it's a kind of a hard club to get thrown out of. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's like, you really yeah. got to fuck up that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, since you mentioned Minotauro and Evansville, uh, then I guess I'll close with this story. And uh, that was when we did uh, Rogerio Minotauro's uh, debut that, there. That was and his first fight. With yeah. a big team. Uh, do you remember what happened the, the day after that show? I don't. Okay, cool. This, this is a good story. This, this, is, this is classic Dan because, you know, you can tell he's demanding in, in, you know, for his team and stuff like that. And he's a good boss, right? So, he sponsored the show, and Saturday we had all the big fights, and we did a matinee show Sunday. And Dan didn't stay for the matinee show. He got the team back on the plane, and they took off for, for Florida, and he calls me, and he goes, um, Minotauro left the pride belt up there. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> and he goes, uh, you know, just, I just want you to go grab it, take it to the airport, here's the account number, and FedEx it back to me. I need it. And I was like, great, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it tomorrow or after the show. 
you know, we got a show going on. Dan was like, uh, no, I need you to do it now. <laughs> so I got to the show late. You know, it's the only time he actually pulled rank on me. He's a great boss. But <laughs> but wow. I love that. So I mean, we got him the belt. And he had to go back to Brazil, you know, that the, the plane and stuff. But, yeah, he had left the pride belt. He's forgetful, I guess. Surprised he fucking made the plane in the first place. <laughs> yeah. Might Dan, absolute gentleman. Your contributions to the sport are much greater than what we had mentioned today, and we sincerely appreciate your time, man. Well, nice to go over some old stories with guys that have been around a long time. You know, it's a, it's changed a lot, but it's been a pretty fun ride, right? Yeah, yeah for, for sure. sure. Definitely. For sure. Again, and, and yeah, thank you from every, from me, for myself personally, for everybody in the sport. Definitely, thank you. You're, you're still going to go down on, you know, generally unrecognized for your contributions. There's no way to really quantify it. And your humility doesn't help. Everything. Yeah. And that's, that's the bottom line is, is thank you very much, man. And thank you for the interview. All right, guys, take care. Thank you. Deep dive number 123, 122, something like that in the books, Dan Lambert. I, I think that's a historical one because yeah. he's a behind the scenes guy. I think this long interview is a chance to get to know him. Like a lot of people have never, you know, may never met him or heard of him. You know, he's a mysterious figure. If you follow ATT, you probably know him and he's, you know, become more personable and been more out in front. But I think it was a good chance to, you know, really get into one of the like best minds in MMA. To me, one of the best minds in MMA. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, this guy, is a genius and it would have been interesting to see if, if uh, he had bought the UFC and that worked out where we'd be today. It'd be something completely different than where we are, but it would probably be successful. I'll tell you that. This guy doesn't fail at much. Well, you know, the thing with Dan Lambert is he's one of the harder interviews to prepare for because a lot of the inner working stuff of the American top team, you know, he's not going to give answers where, he sticks his neck too far out there. And then he doesn't give many interviews. Like he gives interviews to people he knows. And if he doesn't know you, he's not giving it to you. So it's kind of a flex on our end. And the way I describe Dan Lambert to people is you might have a Lamborghini driving down the street. You see the outside and the interior. It's just gorgeous and you can gawk at it. But the engine underneath the hood is what makes that car special. And to pretend that he wasn't laying the foundation in between the bricks, if he wasn't putting the mortar in between them, like you just, you just don't know mixed martial arts that well, because he was there from the beginning. And, you know, I, I, I've been at regional shows where you hear people, well, I've done this for the sport. I've done that for the sport. There's very few people that have lost as much money as Dan Lambert with the sport of mixed martial arts. Like it's, and, and, and you never hear him tell yes, no. you know what I mean? He's never sitting there having a pity party for himself over, you know, the money he's lost. But maybe, you know, in private at times he has some regrets or about throwing so much away or whatever. But, you know, you never hear him out in public being like, oh, I got killed on that one or, oh, you know, throwing himself in there or anything like that. I think what you're talking about is a guy who's passionate for the sport. And I think that's the thing to be grateful for is when someone that has the resources he has, and is able to help. You know, ATT is formidable. The shows that, that were run, the fighters that he bought up, you know, all 
you know, owe him a debt of gratitude and, and as well as many other promoters and, you know, save the day kind of thing. I think found it interesting and you get some real interesting as to the way this man's mind works, right? So you don't really remember many things about any of the incidents, really. You know, if you notice any other well, he didn't get too, too many details. And, but he's also HR for the thing, you know? So it's like, yeah, you know, he, 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 so I understand. And I do understand that because I, obviously that's an ongoing business and that's, you know, there's the privacy too. He, the way he handles things is, is, is why he is where he is. And he'd prefer to keep that, you know, under the hood of the Lamborghini. <laughs> and that's a great, right. you know, but, he, but Miguel, let, let's also kind of reflect on some of our past interviews. I don't want to say any names, but we've, we've had interviews where we've stopped the person from telling stories about Dan because we had felt that it, all it would do is encourage other people with their hands out, contacting him out of the blue, just kind of begging for, you know, a scrap. And, you know, we didn't think that was right. Like he's genuinely, I know three people that he's paid for surgeries for. And I'm not talking like little surgeries, like six figure surgeries. And he's never asked for a public thank you. He hasn't asked for a single thing other than I got you covered. Yeah, he's, you know, he's a guy, he's a guy different than anybody else in the business. And this is what makes him, him different to me as, as a sponsor. The passion's there, right? But what makes ATT different than, you know, Greg Jackson's? You know, Jackson has also had a situations where, you know, fighters are, are training, you know, maybe to fight each other or, you know, for title fights. And, you know, the it, it became the gym became small. They had to get, you know, time for John Jones alone and stuff like that. And some even top line fighters felt, you know, maybe a little bit isolated. Dan's income doesn't come from MMA. Whatever he does no. outside of that, 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 you know, that made him his fortune. He, it's not from MMA. And that makes him pretty powerful because in a situation where ATT is really mushroomed in Florida, where they actually have several facilities, you could train, you know, Dean Thomas's version of ATT or, you know, at the Coral Springs building. The yeah, building. Ralph Garcia, they, they, they got them all stuff. over. And yeah. part of that is because he, you know, supported those on the, on the way up in the grassroots, you know, way. So, so, yeah, he's a formidable, like I said at the beginning of the interview, easily to me a top 10 most influential person in the sport as, as we're documenting it. So thank you, Dan. Thank you for everything you've done, and thank you for the interview, man. Yeah, absolutely. So ladies and gentlemen, if you could like, share, subscribe, we're going to bring more content like this. And by the time you hear this, we're hoping to have something very special locked down. We're, uh, we're hitting some pretty good numbers. You know, to Miguel and Chris, we're just like, well, they're not good enough, but they're decent. They're decent enough to where people are noticing and it's getting our, you know, it's getting our brand out there. So if you like this, you think it's special, you've got to like, share and subscribe it. Leave comments throughout, you know, the video, Vegan Higgler. We've got, you know, Mike Crane, Sec Pro Zinc, uh, MMA Purist. Those are people that are really going out of their way to, uh, you know, make sure our show is heard and it's, it's greatly, greatly appreciated. So with that, Miguel, that's a wrap, buddy. Check out the full interview on iTunes, Spotify, and all major podcast platforms.